Thanks for joining us again on the podcast. A lot of what we talk about here has to do with memory, with ethics, with personal tragedy. But today we're talking about something a little more tangible and very ordinary. Today we're talking about money. So the banks have these enormous reserves of money that come in that is blood money, it's tainted money, but they can use it for whatever their commercial purposes are until the SS withdraws it. And meanwhile, they use these assets to pay the expenses of Theresienstadt or the deportation trains to the east. And the banks are transferring all that money. So they're using the, the money they steal from the Jews to pay for the, the machine that's effectively killing the Jews. Absolutely. The Holocaust made a profit. The Holocaust made a profit. Welcome to On the Holocaust, a podcast from Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. I'm your host, Jonathan Gall, and the topic of this episode is German big business and the Holocaust. What role did large commercial companies play during the rise of the Nazis? How did they contribute to or even profit from the final solution? And how did all this affect their legacy? It's a complicated story, a sad story, but definitely an important one to tell and learn from. Our guest today is the historian Peter Hayes, emeritus professor at Northwestern University and the former chair of the academic committee at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Professor Hayes is the author or editor of 10 books on the Holocaust, including a prize-winning study of the pharma company IG Farben. He's a leading scholar of the historiography of industry in Nazi Germany and has been fascinated by the topic of the Holocaust for most of his life. This fascination begins, perhaps, in suburban Boston of the 1950s when he was looking to buy a typewriter. And a friend of mine's mother said, oh, you should go see so-and-so. She has an old Underwood that she's going to sell and so on. And I did. She lived down the street from me. And, and I bought it. And I remember I went to get it. And I think I paid $10. It was ridiculous. And I went down the street to get it. And it was a summer day. She was wearing a summer dress. And I saw that she had a tattoo on her forearm. And I knew what that was. I was 13 years old, and uh, you know, people think that you didn't know anything about the Holocaust in the 1950s. It was suppressed. Well, it, I knew what it was. And so I bought my first typewriter from a Hungarian Jewish woman now living in suburban Boston 13 years after she had been liberated. Hayes, who comes from an Irish Catholic family, really finds his calling around Christmas of 1968. My sister married a German. And I was in 1968, I had won a scholarship to Oxford. So I was in Britain and I didn't have any money to go home to America. So I went and spent the Christmas holidays with the German family from which my brother-in-law came. And that was how I started with this particular fascination. I, had, I knew about the Holocaust before uh, that time, and I had seen movies like Judgment at Nuremberg and Exodus and the Diary of Anne Frank. And I was interested in racial justice because I had, or, or prejudice, because I had grown up in the United States at the heyday of the civil rights movement. So all of these things suddenly came together when I got to Germany because I started learning German. And then I started dealing with the rationalizations that Germans had 
the family from which my brother-in-law came, uh, his father had not been a Nazi, but his stepmother had been a member of the League of German Girls, uh, which was the Nazi girls organization. And his brother, that is my my brother-in-law's uncle now, uh, had been a stormtrooper. And so I met all these people and I heard all the things they said and the rationalizations they used, like anti-communism was what they were really motivated by rather than anti-Semitism and so on. And then I began learning the language and um, it's going to sound very strange. I fell in love with the German language. At one point, he visits Frankfurt with his new German in-laws where they arrive at a large statue, a man rising from the ground, breaking chains. And on the base of that monument were names, Mauthausen, Dachau, you know, the concentration camps. And my 18-year-old German sort of brother-in-law who had just done his abitur did not know what they were. And so I asked him, what is that? And he said, well, you know, when we get in, when we got history classes, we stopped at World War II. And I think that is pretty much the way Germany was in the 50s and 60s. Now, that breaks in the 70s. It changes remarkably. But that was the the way the country was. It was a, a collective amnesia. Let's start to put together a chronology. On the eve of Hitler's takeover of Germany, the general attitude of German big business towards the Jews was, as Peter Hayes puts it, ambivalent. It isn't quite accurate to say that most of the leaders of Germany's leading corporations were anti-Semites. But they were mistrustful of certain groups of Jews. And this made them fundamentally ambivalent about defending Jews. They did not feel that the Jews that they came into daily contact with in business affairs and so forth were a menace to Germany, the way the Nazis depicted them. But they did think that some Jews were a menace to Germany. And what, what categories am I talking about? Well, first, I think the what they would have referred to as the Ostjuden, There were about 100,000 immigrants to German, Jewish immigrants to Germany in that period. Most of them came from Poland. Um, many of them were Orthodox and traditional. They often seemed shockingly alien to many middle-class Germans. And then the other thing that uh, irritated corporate leaders in, in thinking about Jews was the prominence of Jewish intellectuals in what you can loosely call leftist circles, you know, um, people who were critical of capitalism, people not necessarily communists, people who were liberals. And they were very prominent in uh, German newspapers and in German cultural life, particularly playwrights and theater directors and so forth. A lot of German corporate executives thought, you know, these people are disturbances. They, they, they threaten our walks of life and so on. So what happened is the Nazis were rising is on the one hand, German business leaders tended to think, oh, well, you know, anti-Semitism, it's just agitation to appeal to the masses. So they underestimated what they were facing. But on the other hand, they also were not fervent anti-anti-Semites. They didn't necessarily have the, the conviction that categorizing these people as dangerous was by definition Evil. Then, around early 1933, the Nazis begin to threaten and intimidate, politically, financially, personally. 
Nazis in, in the middle management levels of companies began coming to work in their uniforms. And then they began demanding that Jewish co-workers be dismissed. Because remember, this is still the Depression. And the Nazi managers would say, you know, we still have a lot of good, loyal national socialists out there who don't have jobs. Fire the Jews and replace them with these national socialists. Threats are also made on the national level. At one point in 1933, Hitler summons the leaders of German business and industry to a meeting. And what basically happens is that Hitler gives a speech and Goering gives a speech, and they basically say to the industrial leaders, there's going to be blood in the streets if you don't give us money and help us win the election, because we want to win. But even if we lose, we are not going to give up office. In other words, he threatened them with civil war. And, and he basically said, get on our team. And, and they do. They, they contribute basically three million Reichsmarks. This is when a pattern begins to develop in what Hayes describes as a slippery slope of morals. The original sin? Agreeing to the Nazis' early demands. There was another event that occurred that historians have often overlooked, and that is that a group of Nazis invaded the headquarters office in Berlin of the National Association of German Industry and said to the head of the association, we want you to fire all your Jewish employees, as well as the two vice chairmen of the organization who are politically unacceptable to us and replace them with two other people we want. And if you don't do this, we're not leaving. So it was basically a sit down. The head of the National Association was a famous industrialist named Gustav Krupp von Bohlen und Harbach, the head of the Krupp firm that made munitions and coal and steel and so on. And Krupp immediately turned to Hitler, called Hitler, and said, please, you know, get these people out of my office. And, you know, we, we, we don't want to accept these demands. And Hitler told him no. And then Krupp basically caved. He fired the people as the Nazis had demanded. He dismissed the Jewish employees, which was illegal under German uh, labor law. And he was then reproached by several of his colleagues who said, you shouldn't have done that. That will, we will never be able to resist a Nazi demand again because you have done this. And he then turned to those colleagues and said, you either back me up or I quit. And then they caved. By the middle of 1934, fully half the Jewish directors in the largest corporations in Germany had been either dismissed or forced to resign. I think it's important to recognize that it happens under pressure because most German historians who write about this subject are understandably reluctant to say anything that seems to excuse or, or exculpate these industrial leaders. So you don't want to talk about them being under pressure because that seems to make it their behavior somehow understandable. I'm not saying that. It's not understandable. But they were under pressure. And I think it's for a fair historical account, we have to show this. And the pressure was not just about, you know, your business will be harmed. I mean, some of them were arrested. So they get rid of most of the Jews working in the companies. And then phase two, they start buying up all the Jewish companies and assets. Because companies see opportunities. The, the Jewish owners want to sell. These companies have not yet reacquired their pre-depression value, so they're cheap. 
And the companies that would buy them are recovering. As the Nazi economic policies take hold, there's more money in the um, economic system. And the pressure that the Jewish owners are under steadily mounts because the regime expands its uh, targets from publishing and beer manufacturers were big, important for, to the Nazis. They wanted to drive Jews out of the manufacture of, of, of things that the stormtroopers would consume. So banks become a source of major pressure on Jewish owners because all medium-sized and large businesses operate with lines of credit from banks. They're thinking the Jews are owners are under such pressure that they might not be able to repay the line of credit. So the banks go from being helpful to Jewish owners to, in fact, pressuring them to sell. And you have not only the established corporations doing this, but the worst of these figures in German corporate history is a man named Friedrich Flick. And Flick builds an empire of coal mines and steel factories and ironworks in the 1930s, predominantly by buying Jewish-owned companies as the owners try to get out. And so he becomes, by 1942, he's the second largest steel producer in Germany. And in 1932, he was a nobody. By this time, late 1937 and into 38, German business is booming. They've got all these new toys they bought super cheap from the Jews, some lucrative government contracts with a war looming, and it all leads up to Kristallnacht, the November pogrom. Kristallnacht the burning of the synagogues and all of that is the culmination of a year of intense persecution. And during that year, the banks become instrumental in helping the regime persecute Jews because Jews are forced to turn almost everything they own into cash. Uh, jewelry had to be monetized. Insurance policies had to be monetized. You had to turn them into the insurance company and collect the face value. And then all that money was put into a bank deposit in the name of the individual Jew. And then trustees were appointed by the Nazi state to restrict how much money the Jew could take out of the account. All of this was administered by the banks, not by the SS. And they become the transmission belts for property of Jews going from the possession of Jews into the possession of the Nazi state. And the insurance companies, after Kristallnacht, refused to pay for the damages to the Jewish-owned shops that they had insured. After that, deportation, ghettos, hunger, and the death camps. So just to recap, the Jews were fired, their assets gone, and finally, they themselves were sent away. Now, here's another part of this story with huge financial implications to the German companies in question. We're about 75 years after the end of the Civil War in America, and these companies are using slave labor. By late 1943-44, the overwhelming majority of laborers from concentration camps are Jews. Most of the slave laborers initially were put to work on construction. The problem was that the rates that the SS charged were generally beyond what paid for the companies because these were not people experienced with construction work. They were often weakened by years of starvation before they got there. But the companies keep hiring them for two reasons. One is they don't have anybody else. 
The other is the Nazi state was a state in which um, political favor was very important. It was an economy in which the state provided well over half the demand. So companies were very eager to keep good relations with the SS and with the leaders of the Nazi state. So in the case of the IG Farben factory at Auschwitz, for instance, the leaders of that factory knew that the inmate labor was not essential to completing the factory because it just wasn't doing enough. It couldn't, it couldn't do a lot of sophisticated things, but they kept paying the SS for the labor. Between the stolen assets, the government and military contracts, and the cheap labor, German big business was, quite literally, making a killing. The persecution of the Jews assembles, concentrates large assets. And those assets, when they're turned into money, have to be deposited somewhere. They're deposited in the subsidiaries of the Deutsche and the Dresdner banks in Prague. And the biggest depositors in the Deutsche Bank subsidiary and the Dresdner Bank subsidiary are respectively the ghetto at Theresienstadt and the transfer office of the SS for the assets of the Czech Jews before they're deported. So the banks have these enormous reserves of money that come in that is blood money, it's tainted money, but they can use it for whatever their commercial purposes are until the SS withdraws it. And meanwhile, they use these assets to pay the expenses of Theresienstadt or the deportation trains to the east, and the banks are transferring all that money. So they're using the, the money they steal from the Jews to pay for the, the machine that's effectively killing the Jews. Absolutely. The Holocaust made a profit. The Holocaust made a profit. We actually know in one country, we know this down to almost the penny, that is in, in the Netherlands, the costs of deporting the Dutch Jews, so um, of, of whom about 110,000 die, the costs of deporting them come to 2% of the total confiscated assets from Jews in the Netherlands. It's hugely profitable. It's hugely profitable. Wow. And, and then the other part of this wartime story is, um, is the camps. I mean, Auschwitz. And Auschwitz was huge, hugely profitable. Auschwitz made a profit of basically 100%. Uh, we know pretty much what Auschwitz collected for the labor of inmates. And we know pretty much what it costs to operate Auschwitz. And the second is half the first number. It's 30 million to 60 million Reichsmarks. One of the most chilling parts of this story is realizing that a lot of products we buy and use to this day might be manufactured and distributed by those same German companies Peter Hayes has spent his career studying. Take a look around you. Your stereo system, your blender, your pills maybe. Some of the brand names have changed over the years, but many have not. Well, two of the most famous companies, I think, that were involved in this is, is first is, is Siemens. Um, and Siemens is a particularly interesting story because Karl Friedrich von Siemens, who was the head of the company in 1932, was not a pro-Nazi figure. Uh, actually came in to New York in, in December of 1931, gave a speech to a business group in New York in which he warned about the dangers of the Nazis. 
But Siemens is a kind of prototype of this line. That is, he was ambivalent about the Jews at the beginning. He caved very fast in 1933 because he said, you know, if I stand up for these individuals, I risk losing the whole operation. And that was the calculation he made right away. Now, that shows you how little imagination these people used because those were not the only two choices. You could think of things to do that would have at least blunted the force of this. But he gave it, he capitulated so fast. And then by 1942, Siemens is never joined the Nazi party, uh, was not an active proponent of the regime. But by 1942, his company was hiring slave laborers. And they had a factory right outside the gates of Ravensbrück in North Germany, which was a concentration camp for women. And they worked many of these women to death under uh, atrocious circumstances. He also had a factory, a smaller one, at a place called Bobrek, which is right outside of Auschwitz. It's all a decision out of practicality. This is not driven by anti-Semitism. It's driven by a kind of blinkered mentality, looking only at the success of the firm, which in Siemens's case was, for him, kind of irresistible. His, whole, his family had built up the firm. He probably felt an enormous responsibility to his grandfather and father and all of this. And, and he had totally devoted his life to this company. He couldn't imagine this, making a decision on any other basis. So greed is one explanation for the decisions made by these companies and executives, but it's not the only one. For some business magnets, it was family pride, personal ego, or a matter of professional reputation. I often think, as an example of this, there's a man named Kurt Prufer. Kurt Prufer was the engineer who designed the gas chambers that were built at Birkenau. And the income on building those gas chambers is not very much. The, the commission that he earned was not very much. But what he did get out of doing it, and he knew what those chambers were going to be used for. He actually advised the SS on how to make the chambers more effective in killing people. What he was going to get was bragging rights. I am such a good engineer that I could solve this problem. And he wasn't going to get rich off of this, except indirectly, because the bragging rights might make him rich. And so, so it's a little more complicated than just money. If you've never heard the name, IG Farben was a German chemical and pharmaceutical conglomerate, once the largest company in Europe and the largest chemical and pharmaceutical company in the world. It was also a Nazi party donor and relied on slave labor from concentration camps, including 30,000 from Auschwitz. IG Farben was involved in medical experiments on inmates at both Auschwitz and Mauthausen, and one of its subsidiaries supplied the poison gas, Cyclone B, that killed over one million people in the gas chambers. The Allies seized the company at the end of the war, and the U.S. authorities put its directors on trial. That employee knew what the substance was being used for. We have no proof that he told the leaders of Degusa, his owners, um, but we do know that he knew. He had a conversation with a leading SS man who told him what was happening. There are various accounts of what words he used to tell him, but he knew. And he continued to, to sell the stuff to the SS. He was himself a fervent Nazi, so it was not a hard decision for him. 
And then I suppose the other companies that you know nowadays are, of course, Volkswagen used Campion Mates to build an aluminum smeltery uh, alongside their main plant. Uh, ironically, that smeltery never worked. After the war, people are very, very slow. German company leaders are very slow to admit to any of this. They constantly say, oh, well, you know, it was Nazi, it was Nazi Germany, it was a dictatorship, we had to do these things. And what I'm trying to say is, of course, that's not true. They didn't have to do these things. They might have been penalized if they had not done some things, but most of them didn't run that risk. They didn't even try to think of something else. They don't say no. They just automatically conform because they, these are the prevailing conditions. That's incidentally a phrase that was used right from the beginning in 1933. They'd, companies would, when they were firing people, they would write to the Jewish employee and say, taking into consideration die gegebenen Verhältnisse, the prevailing conditions, the given conditions, we have to, we feel that we are compelled to do thus and so. So there's always this adaptation. There's always this sort of sense of you accommodate. You might be thinking back at this point to Schindler's List, that iconic film based on true events, of course, about a German Gentile industrialist, exactly the type of person we're describing in this episode, but one who made a dangerous moral decision to save Jews. Though there were a few German industrialists who attempted to save Jews working in their factories, Peter Hayes says he couldn't really point to another Schindler. He describes a certain lack of creativity. Even if these men were not Nazis themselves, they just could not think of another way to deal with the Nazis. There were trials. Uh, the United States tried the leaders of IG Farben, 23 of them, uh, for war crimes. Uh, Krupp's leaders were put on trial. Two of the leaders of the Dresdner Bank were put on trial. And I think the... corporate world rapidly concluded that if you admit you knew anything, then you were admitting guilt, and that would be lead to punishment. So they close ranks immediately, and they construct this story about we, we had to do it, we were forced to do it, so on. And besides, we are necessary for the reconstruction of West Germany in the face of the communist threat. And therefore, let's forget about this and so on. And then they believe it, and, and they, they cling to their story. Well into the late 1960s, early 1970s, when the things begin to break. But the evidence of their complicity is largely hidden because all of these companies sit on their archives. Hayes tells of nights spent in the archives of these companies where he understood exactly how they controlled their narratives. Well, uh, Siemens had an archive, and you could get into the Siemens archive. I did in the early 1980s, but you couldn't necessarily see everything that was in it. I remember once being asked, I, I asked to see a file that had to do with political contributions in the uh, late 1920s, early 1930s. And the, uh, the worker there who rolled the trolley of the documents up to me looked at me and said, um, Sie wissen. These Akte sind schon bereinigt worden. You know that these uh, documents have been cleaned out, is what he said to me. When did it finally begin to change? Many decades later, and many thanks to the American legal system. In the late 1990s, because of the class action suits in the United States uh, that threatened German companies that had assets here, that 
the, the suits were usually filed on behalf of surviving slave laborers from these companies who wanted restitution. And they could file in American courts because there was American property of these companies that could be used to pay the restitution. And this led these companies in many cases to decide, okay, we better get the record out. Um, no matter how bad the record is, it can't be worse than what they're saying about us. So let's get it out. And many of these companies opened their archives. Uh, Degusa opened its archives to me. Uh, the Dresdner Bank, which actually had not just sat on its archives, it had hidden them in a bunker in Berlin, an air raid bunker, and it had never even cataloged them. The Dresdner Bank then hired a group of historians and brought them to the bunker, opened the door and said, here it is. It took them two years just to sort the material before they could begin to use it and write the history. Some of these companies, it should be said, contribute significantly to Jewish and Israeli institutions. But the contributions companies have made bear no relation to what they did. They are based on a percentage of the company's current sales. So a company that was deeply involved in persecution uh, in the first place can decide for itself whether it wants to contribute or not, and then may contribute an amount that is well below what it gained by having participated in the persecution. Degusa made money selling the gold that was taken from not only the assets of Jews, but also from the mouths of Jews, from the fillings, from Auschwitz, and so forth. They made a, a fair amount of money. I calculated it at the time uh, in the early in this century. I calculated it as about $2 million. They also, to this day, still own some of the companies they acquired from Jewish owners in the 1930s, which turned out to be very rewarding over time. So I believe in general, you can say that whatever firms have paid in, it is not commensurate with what they did. There's the very famous quote by the philosopher Hannah Arendt on the banality of evil, which we reference quite a lot here, maybe too much. When I asked Peter Hayes if there's something we can learn from this story, he pulled that quote. Originally written about Adolf Eichmann, Hayes says, it actually makes much more sense when applied to these men. The banality of Eichmann was that he was thoughtless. And what she meant by that was he could not put himself in the place of other people. He could not. That was his thoughtlessness. Well, we know that's not true of Eichmann. We know Eichmann was a fervent believer in what he was doing. He thought he, what he was doing was good. And so the people who were truly thoughtless were the people who were sitting in these boardrooms making these decisions as if the people subject to their decisions were not human beings. But they were capitalists. They were thoughtful. They were thoughtful above anything else about the bottom line. The bottom line, but also um, this personal mission too. It's, it's not just greed. They're building empires. For many of them, it's family businesses. I am the company. I am the company. There's certainly something we can learn from the story, and it's chilling. It is that, uh, well, Jean Renoir has a film in which one of the characters says, the tragic thing about life is everybody always has their reasons. And these people reasoned in a way that is very familiar to us. We can see how they thought. And it took them down the road 
to participating in the murder of people. And I, I think that's the chilling thing. It's the, the one of the historians who participated in the volume on the Dresdner Bank wrote, has a marvelous line in that volume. He said, the moment they began to reason pragmatically, they were lost. That's it for this episode of On the Holocaust, a podcast from Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. My name is Jonathan Gall, sound editing and mixing by Dor Komet. Tova Shimanov was our producer. Thanks to our guest, Peter Hayes, emeritus professor at Northwestern University and the former chair of the academic committee at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Subscribe to this feed wherever you get your podcast for more episodes with more stories you might not have heard before. Thanks for listening. Be well.